Amen. 2021's been quite a year, and I was just noticing, uh, you know, this year had more than normal of uh, people who went on to be with the Lord. And as I was thinking about that, the thought went through my mind that, you know, we lost a lot of people this year. And then the thought was, no, we didn't lose them. Because when you lose something, you don't know where it is. We know where all those people are right now. And it's not in our past, it's in our future. And so uh, we recognize that we're part of the church who are active and quick, and there's the church triumphant, and we're going to be together again for eternity. So God did some great stuff in 2021, but we're not a finished church. This isn't a finished vision, and we're not finished people, and we got a lot on tap for this year. Uh, And in fact, I don't have, as I've been praying about this year and asking the Lord to kind of give me vision for where we're going, he hasn't given me a single word, but he's given me a verse. A, a, a scripture that we're supposed to focus on is supposed to function as kind of the outline for us for the year. So if you have your Bibles, turn them to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read a verse, actually a passage, from the very end of Acts chapter 2. But let me catch you up on the context while you're turning there. Acts 1 begins where the gospel of Luke left off. Jesus has died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. And in Luke 1, Jesus appears to his people over the course of 40 days, giving them, the text says, many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, you may be wondering, why did he need to take 40 days to do that? And here's why. Because people don't typically get up out of the grave. So they were skeptical just like you or I would be if we were there. So it took 40 days of him appearing to them, and he began to talk to them about the kingdom, which is what he had preached about the whole time before the cross. He teaches them about the kingdom, and here's what he says. You have a mission that you're going to do, but before you go on the mission, here's what I need you to do. You go to Jerusalem, and you wait for the promise of the Father. And then he said in in Acts 1 verse 8, and you will receive power. After the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, this is the mission, being his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth, but you wait for power. And so they do that and we begin Acts chapter 2. When you're in Acts chapter 2, on the day of what was called the Feast of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, the believers were together and then they have this sound of a rushing mighty wind, these tongues of fire, what appeared to be tongues of fire came and settled on them. The text says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They started speaking in tongues and other people heard them proclaiming the mighty deeds of God in their own language. And some of the people, they're drunk. Peter jumps up and says, hey, these people are not drunk as you suppose. They're filled with the Holy Ghost. And this is that which was prophesied by the prophet Joel that in the end times he was going to pour out his spirit. And then he says, this is proof. And here's where it comes to, Peter preaches a very gospel message. He says, here's the deal. This, what you see right now, this pouring out of the spirit is proof. It's evidence that Jesus is Lord. He's been raised from the dead. He's ascended into heaven and he is Lord. And by the way, you killed him. God overturned the verdict. And they said, what must we do to be saved? They were cut to the heart, the text says. And Peter said, here's what you do. Repent, be baptized, every single one of you for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this gift is for you and for your children and for all of those who are far off, for all for whom the Lord will call. You know what the text says? Verse 41, that day 3,000 got baptized and became followers of Jesus. And then... 
when we get to the end of that, the very next verse is verse 42, and Luke is going to give a little cameo description of this little band of 3,000 Christ followers. He's going to describe them to us, and in verse 42, he picks up the whole story of where we've been. Now, before I read this verse, I need to say a couple of things by way of context. First, Everything that happens at the end of Acts 2 is a result of the beginning of Acts 2. This is very important to get this. Everything that happens at the end of Acts 2 is a result of the outpouring of the Spirit. The life you're going to see demonstrated in these verses here cannot be separated from the presence and power and work of the Spirit. Okay, it wasn't like they heard a sermon and they said, here's how you should live. And they go, okay, let's try really hard to do this. And through pure willpower and self-motivation, they grunted. And they created the most breathtaking community ever formed on the face of the earth. No. No, they, they didn't have it in them to do that. It was a result of the outpouring of the Spirit. It was the presence and the power of the Spirit that changed everything. Now, here's why I'm taking the time to to say this before we get to the text. You can't do this life on your own. Not Not the kind of life we're about to talk about. You can only do it with the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. The disciples didn't. Recall, before Pentecost, they weren't living like this. Before Pentecost, Peter, after having been with Jesus for three and a half years, is still cussing people out, denying Jesus, and cutting people's ears off. Now, after Pentecost, he's the senior pastor of the bunch. I'm not saying senior pastors should cut people's ears off, although I've been tempted. Here's my point. They couldn't live this way without the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, and neither can you. So, look, as we look at this text this year, my prayer, my hope, as we go through the year focusing on this, it's, it's, my hope is that it makes us hungry for an outpouring of the Spirit, my, my hope is that, it, not, I don't want this to be a legalistic thing. Look what the early church did, so you have to do that. That's not the point. My point is I hope it whets your appetite. Yes. I hope you get a little bit hungry and you are compelled to seek of more of God. Amen. And asking him to produce this kind of life in you. He produces this life in you. That's the first thing. The second thing, and I promise we're going to get to the text in just a second. I want you to note about Acts chapter 2. And this is true of all the book of Acts, and actually it's true of the entire New Testament. All that happens in Acts 2 happens in a hostile environment. The early believers did not have political power to wield. Okay, it's not like they could say, you know what, Caligula, he's such a bad emperor, let's vote him out of office. They had no vote. They had no political power. They were living under the most, one of the most powerful empires ever in history, the Roman Empire. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up, it's, it's important that, that we recognize this, that we find ourselves in an increasingly hostile world, even in our own country. We are, we are beginning to live in an increasingly hostile environment, and many people have said that in America, the 21st century is going to be more like the first century than any century in between. In other words, it's going to be more pagan, where our, our culture is becoming more and more pagan. But here's the good news. The gospel did real well in the first century. So maybe we are becoming more pagan, but the gospel, so what are you saying, Tim? Here's what I'm saying. Get your hopes up. 
He's like, get your hopes up. Have you seen? Listen, no matter what happens in our world this year, it cannot stop the move of the Spirit. It doesn't matter what happens. It cannot stop the power of the gospel. Can't do it. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know what that means? That means no government, no political party, no antichrist movement, no persecution, not even hell itself can prevail against the church. And those aren't my words. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus. Now, everybody with me? Let's look at the text. Acts 2, verse 42. Hopefully you're there by now. Here's this cameo description of this brand new Christ-following, spirit-filled believers, 3,000 of them. Here's what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, those four things are going to function as the outline for us as we look at this year. Uh, first, it says they devoted themselves to some things. Now, if you just looked up the word devoted in a Greek-English lexicon, here's what it would say. To be strong toward, to persist, to associate closely or serve personally. The, the Greek word gets used a number of times in Acts. So like in Acts 8, Simon uh, becomes a believer and he follows Philip everywhere. And the text says he, wherever he went, he followed. It, it's the same word. He was devoted to him. And that's what it meant. It was you give yourself to it and follow around. In Acts 10, Cornelius has a man working for him who is his attendant, and he attends to his needs. It's the same Greek word, devoted. So to be devoted to something, like this text says, means more than just you notice it. It means more than giving lip service to. To be devoted to something means that you give yourself to it. You're, you're, you're paying attention, like, like an attendant. What do they need? What do they need? That's what it means to devote. It is of utmost importance to you. So they devoted themselves to four things, and we'll just call it, for lack of a better word, we'll call it four priorities of the early church as a result of the Spirit being there. Remember, everything that happens here is a result of the outpouring of the Spirit. So here are the four priorities for them and for us. Number one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is very important for you to remember. All of this is a result of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is poured out and they get hungry for God's Word. They, they're hungry for the, they're devoted to the teaching of the apostles. Now listen to me, this is very important because we live in a world, in the evangelical world, there's different kinds of churches and there's some churches who want to talk about the present day move of the Spirit and it's Spirit, Spirit, experience, yay, rah, rah, hurrah, and, and there's very little word. And then you have some churches over here that it's all word, 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 uh, and it's all like what God did back then, but you wonder if he's doing anything today. And, and I just want you to hear this. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out, and the result of the Spirit being poured out was people got hungry for God's Word. One of the ways you can measure the work of the Spirit in your life, it's not the only way, okay, but it's one way. One of the ways you measure the work of the Spirit in your life is by your desire for the Word. I mean, do you just endure the sermon, or do you say, God is speaking here? Because when God's word is read and God's word is expounded and the gospel is preached, God is speaking. Or you just kind of go, man, really, is it time, you know, when is kickoff? I mean, do, do, do you have a longing inside of you to get into the scriptures, to, to open up and say, what is God saying? And, 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 and Because listen, a hunger for the word is a result of the spirit. 
And this shouldn't surprise us too much, should it? Because Jesus himself said in John 14, the Spirit would do what? Remind us of what Jesus said. So Jesus told us part of the job description for the Holy Spirit is to put a hunger in us for the Word. He's going to remind us of what Jesus said. So the very first day, this is day one, but it incurred throughout, there was this hunger. What does Jesus say? What are the apostles saying? What the, the Spirit is saying now? And that hunger for the Word continued as a distinctive for the early church for the next couple hundred years, actually. You know, at Christmas time, I, uh, um, Marlene and I try to help each other out and give us ideas, you know, each other ideas uh, for Christmas. And I, and I, you know, call one of her friends and say, hey, what's new in the uh, skincare world, you know, um, and, and to buy presents. And, 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 I, and I try to help her out. I put a list on Amazon of books that I want to read. I send it to her, you know, like, should someone want to buy me a Christmas present? Uh, perhaps one of these books would be a good idea. So this year, I got the whole stack. Oh, I made out at Christmas this year, buddy. Oh, I got a stack of books, and, and I got extra ones, too, from, uh, uh, you know, other kids. I mean, I got a stack of books. And one of the books that I asked for that I'm about two-thirds of the way through now is by Larry Hurtado, who's a historian uh, uh, from, I think, University of Edinburgh. Uh, and, and the book is Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman Empire. I know what you're thinking. That must be a page-turner. I know. It is, actually. It is, it is. And here's one of the points that he points out. One of the things that was distinctive about the early church, not just in the first few decades, but for a couple hundred years, is that the, the early church was devoted to what the apostles wrote, and they, they were devoted to texts for, for a few hundred years. I mean, if you compare that to other, quote-unquote, religions in the first century, you have things like Mithraism, you have the cult of Jupiter, and both in those two, they built buildings, they built temples, they built shrines, they had priests, they made sacrifices, they left no text. The early church, by contrast, had no buildings. Do you, do you realize there wasn't an official designated church building until the third century? Actually, halfway through the third century. So the early church had no buildings, they had no temples, they had no priests, they had no sacrifice. Mostly because they believed Jesus was the temple. Jesus was the priest. Jesus was the sacrifice once and for all. But they had a bunch of texts. In fact, early on, still in the first century, Peter, 2 Peter 3, he's writing to some people. There's, there's some, some kind of going back and forth. And Peter says, now I know Paul's writings can be hard to understand. And some people abuse them just like they do the other scriptures. What's he doing? He's, Peter is recognizing in the first century, not just a letter of Paul, but a collection of accepted letters of Paul that were hard to understand that he called Scripture. From the first century, that's already happening. And these collections of, of, of writings went around in the early church, and they were read, very important to hear this, as part of corporate worship. These letters that Paul and Peter and John wrote, and then, and then once the Gospels were written, they were read as part of corporate worship. So what are you saying, Tim? Here's what I'm saying. From the beginning, the move of the Spirit has produced a passion, a drive, a desire to know God's words. That is why, historically, wherever Christianity goes, literacy follows. I don't have time to give you a history lecture right now, but you can show it. You can map it out. Wherever Christianity goes, literacy follows. Why? Because we're people of the book. God has revealed himself. 
Now, we're going to unpack this more later because when they says they devoted them to the apostles' teaching, what, is that, what was the apostles' teaching? Well, I'll say more about this in the upcoming week. It was the gospel that Jesus is Lord, that he ascended into heaven. His kingdom rules and reigns. He sent his Holy Spirit. That's part of the gospel story, and he's coming back. We'll get into that more later. So, so corporately, let me just kind of apply this to us. As a church this year, to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, we're going to continue our Bible studies Okay, on Wednesday nights and, and during the week, we have the Bible studies. We're going to keep going on that. Just like last year, we did a verse-by-verse verse through Galatians. My hope and my belief is that we're being led later this year to do verse-by-verse verse through the book of Hebrews, which is an intense book, but is written for people who are being persecuted not to give up. Oh, man, we could use that right now, don't you think? So we're going to do that, but individually and prior to that and before that, listen, if you don't feel a fire right now inside of you for God's word, here's what you do. Go to the guy who baptizes with fire, Jesus himself, right? He's the one that's going to baptize with fire and the Holy Ghost, right? The Holy Ghost and fire, right? So if you feel right now, I I just don't feel that, then go to him and tell him. Look, I, I, don't, I, don't feel, I know the work of the Spirit is supposed to produce in me a, a passion. I, I don't feel it yet. And, and let him put the fire in you. Remember I said, this isn't something you crank up. I'm going to work a little harder. It doesn't work that way. Holy Spirit, fill me. Jesus, put that fire in me. Okay, I must go on. The number two, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, I'm sure when I said the fellowship, the immediate image you got in your mind was a couple of dudes back in the fellowship hall, because we call it the fellowship hall. So you probably saw two guys in the fellowship hall, styrofoam cup, you know, half full of coffee, not full, but half full of coffee, sipping on it. How was your day? My boss is a jerk. (laughs) Tell me about it. Think the Vikings are going to beat the Packers today? Do you believe in miracles? <laughs> I've read about them. Uh, okay, okay. Forget that. That is not what this word here means. The word here means participation together. Fellowship means shared life in a common mission. So think less coffee in the fellowship hall and think more the fellowship of the ring. All right, so it, 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 because my favorite trailer for that film uh, has, you know, there is these battles and stuff, and it says, fate has chosen him. Evil will hunt him. A fellowship will protect him. Because that's basically the early church in the book of Acts. Not fate has chosen, but God has chosen. Evil will hunt him. A fellowship will protect him. And in, the, and in the book and in the film, there's these people from all these different races, backgrounds. They have different weapons, different skills, different temperaments, and all of that. And they subject that to the one thing of fighting evil. So being in the fellowship, when you're in that kind of understanding of the fellowship, means you pull out your sword and you fight side by side. Shoulder to shoulder. So what were they doing? They were fighting together. They were dying together. Now listen, I, I don't, you know, I don't think I'm going to die this year. Don't plan to. But if I did, I'd want to die being side by side in the fight with you doing something meaningful with my life. Because I, I, don't, I don't want just a comfortable life. That's not my goal. You know, our goal is not, hey, let's, our goal is to have an easy life. No. Come on. 
When you leave here today, American culture is going to try to sell you something. They're going to try to sell you a dream for your life of ease and comfort and indulgence, and it doesn't sound anything even remotely like the New Testament. It's nothing like that in the Bible. I mean, you read Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, and hopefully we'll get here, you know, to Hebrews 11 in September or something. I don't know. Uh, None of those people, men or women, had a comfortable life. Read Hebrews 11. None of them had an easy life. All of them faced adversity. And you know what it says? You get to the end of Hebrews 11. They conquered kingdoms. They administered justice. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the fury of the flames. They escaped the edge of the sword. And the world was not worthy of them. That's the way I want to live. A number of years ago, there was a fellow by the name of Samuel Zwimmer. He was a 19th century missionary statesman to Muslims in the Persian Gulf. And he, and he went uh, to, among Persians when, when, when everybody else said, you can't do that. Okay, nobody else was doing it. In fact, he went to every mission agency he could find and applied to be sent to Muslims, and he got rejected at every single one of them. Every single one. So you know what he did? He created his own missionary sending agency and sent himself, which normally is a bad idea. But on this occasion, apparently, it was led by the Holy Spirit. And, and he now is considered the apostle to Islam. That's kind of the name, the kind of the moniker that's put on him. Here's what he said. And I heard this quote many years ago, and I, it has rung in my chest ever since. He said this, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. With apologies to the women. You could just put women there too. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Then the doing of your work shall be no miracle, but you shall be a miracle. Man, I want to live a significant life that has meaning and actually made a difference to somebody. Don't you? That kind of life happens in the fellowship. I met a fellow, uh, he was in the Navy down in Virginia Beach a, a few months back, and um, this week, uh, just out of the blue, I, I walking into the pot belly to grab a sandwich for lunch, didn't even attend to go there. I happened to walk in, and the guy's sitting there eating lunch. I'm like, whoa, when did you get here? He said, last night. I'm like, what's the chances of you flying in last night and what's meeting the next day? He's crazy. And he's left the Navy after 20 years, a fighter pilot in the Navy, Flew F-18s, you know, like American hero guy, okay? And, he, and he's out of the Navy now, and he's taking a job at UPS to be a pilot. And so I asked him, what's it like not to be in the Navy after 20 years? He's only been out, a, I don't know, a month or two or something like that. I said, what's it feel like to be out of the Navy? You know what he said without hesitation? I miss the fellowship. I miss the fellowship, the camaraderie. You guys, the same feeling of being in a life and death battle against an enemy and we got each other's back, that's what the early church was like. And they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Now, now some, uh, you know, debate if Luke is referencing the Lord's Supper, like communion that we're going to have in a few moments, or if he's talking about regular meals where they broke bread. And here's what I think. It's probably both. Because in the early church, you know, they did, I don't know if you know this or not, in the early church when they had the Lord's Supper communion, it, they didn't, you know, like have a little bitty piece of bread and a little bitty cup of juice. 
non-alcoholic, thank you very much. Um, it, 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 that's not how they did it, it, especially like in a place called Corinth, they would have big meals. And, and the reason was there were some, Paul had to write them about this because they were abusing the Lord's Supper because some people were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. And he said, don't do that. Right? So, so here, something's going on. He's saying, the early church, Luke looks at the early church and he says, man, they devoted themselves. They gave themselves to breaking bread together. There, there's just something about communion, isn't there? When, when, when the worship team is up here and, 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 and we all come to the table and at this table all the ground is level because you're coming to the cross and nobody in this room earned their salvation, not one single person. And when we come to the table, which represents his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, and we receive the elements, we're remembering that we are saved by grace. Oh, and we're all in the same boat on this one. And there's just something that's uniting about it. There's something that's, that we're, it's, there's a reason it's called communion. It's not just, it is remembering, but it's not just remembering. It's participation together. And isn't there something just about breaking bread with people too? Just, just sitting down at a table and, and having a meal and, and sharing life. Man, the early church devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, meaning it wasn't just an add-on. It wasn't like optional equipment on a car. Yes, thank you very much. I think I will have the sunroof. No. It was part of what it meant to be the people of God. Remember, everything here is a result of the outpouring of the Spirit. So, and this may, for some of you, this is kind of hard to get your head around. It is a Spirit-led thing to break bread with people. They devoted themselves. Now, look. You know, historically, as a church, we've handled that mostly through, you know, life groups and small groups and Bible studies and things, breaking bread together. Uh, but we, twice a year, we have the, you know, more of a corporate, bigger breaking bread, like at the church picnic and the fall fest. Well, this year, we're going to do those, but we're also going to have a few Sundays. We, we haven't put these on the calendar yet, but we're going to have a few Sundays through the year where we just all come. We set up tables up in the, in the uh, gym, and after church, we bless the food, and everybody brings some food to share, and we just break bread together. With no agenda. Because it is, is a spirit-led thing to do. And so we're going to do that. And we invite you to be doing that yourself, just in, in small groups, inviting people into your home. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and number three, number four, I can count. See? They devoted themselves to prayer. They gave themselves to seeking God in prayer. And i got to tell you guys, I believe one of the things the Lord is saying to us as a church this year is that we are to raise the level of prayer in our church. Because you guys, this is where we find power. We live in a hospital. Listen, just raise your hand if you think, and hold on with me. You don't have to agree with me, but you think it might be possible that I'm right. If you think it's possible that maybe there's some tough days ahead and we need the power of the Holy Spirit like never before, raise your hand if you think that's just possible. It's possible. Yeah, that's most of us. And so this is one of the things we got to do is raise the level of prayer. John Piper defined prayer like this. Prayer is the splicing of our limp wire to the lightning bolt of heaven. That's like, that's like, I, see, I fear that sometimes we don't really believe fully in the power of prayer. 
I think sometimes we give it lip service. <laughs> I, I, I told a story at the leadership banquet about um, a church, a little small Baptist church in a little town on Main Street, it was Main Street Baptist Church, and a strip club moved in right next door to them. And that was very upsetting to them, as you can imagine. And so they called a prayer meeting on a Friday night. And, and, you know, at first it started off, they were praying for the owner of the strip club, but then they, you know how these things go, sometimes you get a little excited, and, and, and you know, and, and one person finally got up there and prayed, burn it down, praise God, burn them down. That weekend, a thunderstorm came into the town, lightning struck the strip club, and it burned down. Well, as you can imagine, the owner of the strip club was very upset with the church, and he said, you burned my church down. They said, we didn't have anything to do with it. You know, we didn't have, no, we were just, you prayed that God would burn. Well, we did that. We didn't do that. You know, there was no connection between the two. And so he sued them. They went to court, and after their opening arguments from both the plaintiff and the defendant, the judge said this. It seems that wherever the guilt may lie, the nightclub owner believes in prayer while the church does not. (laughs) Yeah, listen, I don't want that to ever be said about us. I mean, unless it's true, but I don't ever want it to be true about us. I would rather have it said about us what Mary, Queen of Scotland, said about the great Scottish reformer, John Knox. She said, and I quote, I fear John Knox's prayers more than an army of 10,000 men. Why? Because things happened when he prayed, and she knew it. Listen, you guys, when we pray, we're talking to Almighty God. Well, you stop and think about that for a second. We're talking to the guy who said, let there be, and there was. This is, God is so powerful, his words create. This is why God can never lie. I mean, he's not going to lie because he's not immoral and sinful, but it, it, he couldn't even lie if he wanted to. Why? Because he's so powerful, whatever he says is true. Whatever he says is created. It's like if I got up here this morning and said, I am the most handsome man in America, okay, I'd be dreaming. Right? If somebody else said it, you'd be lying if God said it. Right up all in here, the minute it came off his lips, standing before you. Most handsome man in America. My wife's like, speak, Lord, speak. Yeah. <laughs> Here's my point. That's the guy we're talking to. When he says something, it happens. Job 38 says that, you know, have you read Job 38? He said to the ocean, stop right there, and it obeyed him. You know, Isaiah 40 says, Isaiah 40 says, we see stars at night because he marches them out each night and calls them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. He, there's a, every star has a name. Bob. You know, Fernando, yeah, Shaniqua. No. Now listen, why do you think he would call, why do they all need a name? Here's why, so he can call them and tell them what to do. They obey him. Think about this, the stars in their paths around the universe obediently shine. Obedient, and this is the guy we're talking to. 
So what are you saying? What I'm saying is that should lead to a little awe. That should lead to some respect. That should, we should be maybe a little bit careful when we're talking to this guy, right? But it should also lead to some faith that he actually does stuff. Because listen, when, you, when you're in prayer, you're not talking to the people around here who hear you. You're talking to him. When, when the kids were little, you know, we'd always tuck them in bed and pray with them before bed. And the older they got, you know, we would pray and then we'd have them pray. On one occasion, Marlene and I were putting Nathaniel and Graham to bed, and, and it was Nathaniel's turn to pray. And he had his pillow, and his face was kind of down on his pillow, and he was praying, and we couldn't understand what he was saying. So Marlene said, hey, pick your head up and speak up. We can't hear you. And he picked his head up and looked at her and said, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> Which put me in an awkward place because you can't talk to mama that way. But that's really good theology, actually. <laughs> he wasn't talking to us. He was talking to Almighty God. So what do we got? We got to raise the level of prayer here at New Life this year. I believe this, is, this is a, it was a priority to the early church. It's a priority for us this year. And we're going to do that in a number of different ways through uh, nights of prayer and worship. This Wednesday is the first one. We're going to focus on worship and prayer. We're going to have a class going on while the Bible studies are going. We're also going to have a, a class on prayer. We want to re-engage some prayer teams. And my hope is pretty soon we're going to restart one particular prayer group we used to have that we never really announced, but it was for parents who were praying for our children that they were really concerned about. We had this group, and uh, you know, maybe the family has prodigal children, or maybe they were fighting an illness or just struggling with depression or just whatever, and we had this group where parents would just come and pray, and, and there was zero judgment. Listen, if you're a parent and you've had uh, some children make a bad decision, you're not in no place to judge somebody else's children. Or somebody else as a parent. By the way, only one perfect father ever in the history of the universe, and his kids rebelled. So we're, we're going to start this prayer group back up because here's the deal. The enemy is after our kids. And I'm not okay with that. He can't have them. He can't have them. You know why? They don't belong to him. They belong to Jesus. And so we're going to re-engage prayer. Now, very quickly. Notice what happened when the early church, led by the Spirit, devoted themselves to those four priorities. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Look at verse 43. We look at these next three verses really quickly. Verse 43. Here's the result. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Now, by the way here, the word awe in Greek is the word phobos, which is where we get the word Phobia or fear. The early church walked in such power in terms of their community and and in terms of the miraculous that there was actually some fear. Some reverence. Some awe. When was the last time that people were in awe of the church? Think about this. They lived in such a way it took people's breath away. Can you imagine? I mean, and what's interesting here is the awe isn't referring to the miracles. It's referring to what you just heard. The apostles teaching the fellowship, the breaking of bread into prayer. So everybody's in awe. And what happens after that? Miracles. Not just a few. Many wonders and miraculous signs occurred among them. So listen, we're going to this year believe that that God's going to do miracles. We're going to believe that. 
You say, you really believe that? Yes, I do. I'm a Vikings fan. I believe in miracles. I've been reading this book, and I kind of mentioned this a few weeks ago uh, by Craig Keener, one of the most prolific biblical scholars out there today. And, and he's written a book called Miracles Today, um, you know, the, the supernatural work of God in the modern world. And, and all of it is, really, it's not a biblical textual argument. It's just he's just recording miracles that have been documented with medical evidence or eyewitness testimony. And, and I have been telling you a few stories, and throughout the year I'll just keep telling them. Uh, so you don't even have to buy the book because just come to church and you'll hear them. Um, uh, no, actually, get the book. It's very encouraging. Uh, but here's, here's one example, just one. Uh, there was a lady named Andrea Anderson who lived in uh, Canada, uh, in Ontario, and she had uh, diabetes, really bad, a really bad case of diabetes, and as a result, she became blind, and she was blind for 12 years. One day, it happened to be Pentecost Sunday of 2016, Pentecost Sunday of 2016, she's in a service, there's a guest speaker there, and she's really moved for her granddaughter or her great-granddaughter, okay? I can't remember. I'm unclear which one it was. I think it was her granddaughter, maybe her great-granddaughter. And, and she's praying because she's really moved for her. Something was going on, and she's praying, but she has this feeling of shame, like God wouldn't even listen to me. It turns out that Andrea had been abused as a child, and many times kids that have been abused, you know, they blame themselves. They, they think this is unjust, but then they... To, kind of dissolve the injustice, they just blamed it. I deserved it. And so she had always lived her whole life with a sense of shame, the sense of false guilt. And she's trying to pray for her great-granddaughter, but she, she really can't because she just feels like, why would God listen to me? I don't deserve God to do this. And she just has this self-hatred. And then in that moment, the guy who's speaking says, he, it makes this authoritative declaration be healed, you know, to her. <laughs> and, and, and notice, you know, sometimes in the New Testament, people pray, like Jesus actually prayed before, you know, raising Lazarus from the dead. There's examples of prayer. And then there's examples where the apostles and Jesus just said, be healed. Or spoke to the illness or spoke to what, the demon or whatever. So this guy just be healed. And then he says to her, she was facing the wrong way. He says to her, turn around and look at me. And she thinks in her mind, well, I can turn around, but I can't look at you. And as she turns, she turns her face towards him, she's healed instantly. And she can see him. Now she's getting super excited and everybody's excited. And, you know, they try to do the thing. How many fingers am I holding? Three. Hold on. Let me try. Let me try. How many fingers am I holding? Four. You know, like, because they're excited. Come on. You'd be excited too. Man, if that, if that happened here, you'd dance so hard, you'd throw your hip out. Don't, don't look at me like, oh, that's, you know, that's, that's common fear. So, so here's the deal. She thought that was the miracle. But in the moment, the speaker comes down, leans down to her and says, and the Lord told me to tell you, he loves you and it wasn't your fault. He knew nothing about her past. And then something happened there. It was deeper than physical sight. Something got healed in her heart. And then after church, they were out in the atrium, and, and the pastor was there, and Andrea walked by, and it was the first time she'd seen her pastor, you know? And, and, she said, and his, her pastor says to her, Andrea, how do I look? Which is a bold question. I never would have asked that, but <laughs> how do I look? And she said, you're gorgeous. And about that time, the pastor's son was walking by. He was about 19 years old. I could totally see this happening to me. Son walks by, and his name was Caden, and, and the pastor says, Caden! Andrea said, I'm gorgeous. And without missing a beat, the pastor's son said, you better pray for her again. 
<laughs> listen, listen. God still does stuff like that. It's a result of the outpouring of the Spirit, of devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Look at verse 44 very quickly. All the believers were together and had everything in common. And when it says together there, that doesn't mean just geographical proximity. It mean, how many of you know you could be in the same room and not be on the same page? That's not what this means. And when it says they were together, it means they were for each other. Man, when something good happens to you, it happens to me. And it says they had everything in common. My, my good buddy, Joe Vincent, he used to always remind the elders whenever this would come up or we have a problem or a challenge, hey, he would say, we got everything in common. Because it doesn't just mean the stuff. Like we often read that as they, all, they had all the stuff in common. So if I need to borrow a truck and you got a truck, you'll loan it to me. Okay, it means that, but it means more than that. It means if one of them was in a battle, we all in a battle. If one person here is being attacked, we're all being attacked. If one here gets a victory and has a celebration and gets a promotion, we, it's, we, it's, that's my victory too. We have everything in common. And look at this, selling their possessions and goods, this is verse 45, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Man, in the Acts 2.42 church, people came to church looking to give. And to them, people were more important than possessions. And that was a result of the Spirit. So they gave. Sadly, you know what, guys? A lot of times American culture has infected our view of the church. So we think church is about what I get. As if we're consumers purchasing a product or making a transaction. A lot of us have a transactional view of worship. I worship you. You do what I want. But church isn't about what you get. You don't come to church to get stuff. You come to give God worship because he's worthy. He deserves it. And you join the fellowship and get equipped and get trained for the battle. A number of years ago, we had a fellow come here. His name was Billy Hornsby. You remember him? Billy Hornsby came and he was speaking. And he told the story. A guy came to his church, and because of an addiction, he lost his job. And he, because of that, his wife had left him and took the kids. Uh, and he was a very broken man. And so Billy brought him in, you know, and gave him the gospel. And the guy, you know, gets saved. He begins to disciple him. Uh, he gets some help with his addiction. He gets free from that. He gets a job. They help him find a job. He gets a job. Because of that, his wife is willing to talk to him. They have counseling. There's reconciliation. Their, their marriage is healed. They get back together. He's got his kids back. And about a year and a half later, I think it was, he comes to Billy and says, hey, we're leaving the church. And Billy said, why, why are you doing that? And he said, and I quote, well, my needs aren't really getting met. Come again? You met Jesus. You got a job. You got free from addictions. You got your wife back and your kids back and your needs aren't being met? And he said, well, not lately. And then I'll never forget what Billy said. You remember this? He said, he, he said here was my problem. Here's, what I, here's where I failed the guy. I failed to get him out of the distribution line, what you get at church, and get him into the contribution line, what you give. See, I, I, as your, I don't help you as your pastor if I let you stay in this line the whole time. Now, look, we, we all got to be in this line sometimes. Me too, man. Sometimes I just need, I need a word from God. Lord, say something. Like, still here. I mean, whatever. 
Sometimes we're there. I get that. But spiritual growth doesn't happen here. It happens over here in the contribution line. See, here's the irony. Here's the irony. In the kingdom of God, it's when you pour yourself out that you find yourself full. It's in the contribution line. Now, as my friend Jim Newsom says, who's watching at home right now, Jim, you better be watching this. You better text me later. Your maintenance is in your mission. You know, we all have, we need some maintenance, some spiritual maintenance, some encouragement. But we all think it's in the getting. No, it's actually not. It's in the giving. Okay, we got to get to this. Verse forty-six. Every day they continued to meet together, and the Greek word there is with one mind. With one mind in the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now I was looking this up. I almost fell out of my chair when I was reading this this week. The word that the NIV kind of benignly translates with glad hearts, you know what it is in Greek? If you look at interlinear, it's exaltation. And I know you don't often text the word exaltation to people. With great exaltation. You know, you, you just, uh, so most people don't even know what it means, right? What, what does the word exaltation mean? It means exuberant joy. Like, Full of joy. And the end of us is they, they ate with one another with glad hearts. It wasn't glad hearts. It was exuberant joy. And look, they were, you say, well, they didn't have, a, they had way more problems than we do. And somehow they had exuberant joy and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Notice the Lord added. The Lord made them grow. They didn't grow themselves. But then again, who wouldn't want to be a part of a church like that? Hmm, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. I'll close with this. One author put it this way. There is nothing like the local church when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. It comforts the grieving and heals the broken in the context of community. It builds bridges to seekers and offers truth to the confused. It provides resources for those in need and opens its arms to the forgotten, the downtrodden, and the disillusioned. It breaks the chains of addictions, frees the oppressed, and offers belonging to the marginalized of this world. And listen to this last sentence. Whatever the capacity for human suffering, the church has a greater capacity for healing and wholeness. However bad it can get out there, it's better in here. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. And listen, we're on the journey. So join me this year. Acts 2. Let's see it happen.